Thank you so much, Rafi. It's an honor and a privilege to be invited to present in this course uh, alongside my esteemed colleagues, mentors, and uh, and, and teachers in, um, from the past. So this lecture, this presentation is titled, in case you missed it, it should be subtitled, The Cure for FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. And... <laughs> In case you fear of having missed something, then this is this is uh, likely to be a little bit of a, uh, an antidote for FOMO. But we'll see. So it it will be uh, thanks to the overlapping pandemics that are upon us. Uh, will be a mismatch of things that have just come out on monkeypox, on COVID, but also, of course, on uh, HIV. And uh, here are my disclosures. So, and our objectives, we hope at the end of the next uh, 30 minutes that you'll be able to describe the clinical presentation of monkeypox infection and what is new about that, outline new findings on complications of antiretroviral therapy. Uh, there will be a presentation on treatments and new drugs, so we will focus on complications and then describe new data on the management of co-infections and opportunistic infections, as well as discuss key findings on COVID prevention in HIV. Some of those developments are as of three days ago. So, and here's the outline, monkeypox first, then non-AIDS complications so in the cure agenda on what has transpired in the past month, opportunistic infections focusing on hepatitis B and uh, PrEP and PEP, and then finish up with uh, COVID efficacy of testing and uh, the data, new data on vaccines. So here is the monkeypox. What we would like to uh, outline is that it's not what we thought it was. Uh, so we have known this disease for decades, and the new ep uh, epidemic that, that popped up in May of this year had features that we did not appreciate or we're not as familiar with. And this is what we know through a number of publications that have come out in the past couple of months. And the next few slides will be a little wordy. And this is, uh, I apologize for that. This is for a reason we need to outline what you're likely to see in a person suspected of having monkeypox and what is different from what we thought we knew about this. Uh, the first one came from a New England Journal of Medicine publication a couple of months ago from 500 plus patients across 16 countries. And this is what they had seen. 98% gay, bisexual men who have sex with men, 41% of them were living with HIV. This data has almost been verbatim duplicated in the U.S. And what I like to highlight on those people living with HIV is that they were by and large virologically suppressed with its relatively high CD4 count. So you don't always no, you don't only suspect this in somebody who has advanced disease, even if it's likely that they will have a higher likelihood of adverse outcomes from the infection. So the clinical presentation also a little different from what we had seen in the past in that most people 
actually have very few lesions. So you don't think smallpox that has covered the whole body and the centrifugal distribution, but most people have very small, a very small number of lesions and focusing probably uh, on areas where there was direct skin-to-skin contact in the genital area. So 71%, three quarters had genital lesions. So seeing people with uh, rectal bleeding or discharge is common in this uh, disease. And more importantly, concomitant sexually transmitted infections are very common, uh, up to a third of people in most uh, cohorts. So three people experience serious complications. So this is not COVID. That is not as uh, a, a lethal uh, an infection as uh, COVID has been, unfortunately. Un- un- uh, and so, again, what is also been appreciated in this uh, uh, study from a couple of weeks ago in, <clears throat> in France is that we can actually have a certain number of asymptomatic infections. Uh, and how do we know that? These people had a, sex, uh, a, a, <clears throat> a uh, sexual health clinic in Paris and they decided to do anal swabs routinely uh, for STR surveillance. And those who were negative for chlamydia and gonorrhea, they were tested for monkeypox. And this is what they found. I apologize, this is a little too uh, uh, small for you to be able to read. But you will see on the column on the right that a good number of those who had symptoms suggesting monkeypox indeed had monkeypox. And among those who did not have symptoms of monkeypox, 200 of them, 13 actually did test positive for monkeypox. And 13, uh, uh, and and some of these uh, actually later on developed symptoms of monkeypox. Now, what does that tell us? Either that asymptomatic infections are common or pre-symptomatic presentations are silent in a number of, uh, uh, and that, that some people uh, would present without symptoms if they had a contact. So it's important to highlight this because you will likely see people who have risk factors or indeed might have had an exposure as of late, they actually might be infected when you see them. And during the current outbreak, uh, as the CDC um, uh, reacted to the data I just presented by issuing this, that lesions often occur in the genital and anorectal areas and the mouth. They could be few and they may not involve the palms and the soles and rectal symptoms are common. And fever and other prodromal symptoms such as shields, uh, lymphadenopathy, malaise, myalgia could occur actually after the rash has already presented. So they're not necessarily prodromal, as the name implies. And then respiratory symptoms can also occur. So it's important to raise awareness if you see people who meet the, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the definitions for, for at-risk populations that this could happen. Again, 40 to 50% in many cohorts of people diagnosed with monkeypox are living with HIV. So it's important for us to know what, if any, should be different in managing monkeypox in people who are living with HIV. Number one, there was... Uh, <clears throat> It's not necessary that you have a, an advanced HIV to have monkeypox, but you might 
be at a higher risk for uh, uh, <clears throat> for for severe disease or severe manifestation from monkeypox. Post-exposure prophylaxis and antiviral treatments are available for people exposed with monkeypox, and we really. Uh, unfortunately, haven't learned a whole lot from the COVID pandemic because we still are suffering through the same things, slow rolling out of testing and slow uh, um, uh, availability of uh, preventive interventions. So this is exactly what we're facing here. However, tecovirumab may result in a reduction in levels uh, of uh, some HIV medications in the class of the NNRTIs. This had caused some consternation in the past and the Liverpool HIV interaction uh, you know, have flagged that. But as of late, it's, it's, it, it, it's possible that that uh, reduction is not significant enough for you to alter the treatment uh, uh, of uh, 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 of somebody who's on an NNRTI. Uh, save carbotegravirepivirin, it's now recommended to not initiate it uh, during tocovirimab uh, uh, treatment. The vaccine, Geneos, the modified uh, uh, vaccine, Ankara, it does work, it's safe in people with HIV, and I will show you later, later that we still do not know how well it works, HIV or no HIV, and the ACAM 2000 should not be given regardless of the immune status. So this is monkeypox with or without HIV. Now, this is as of three days ago or four. Um, we know already that uh, people like me were born way before 1974 are faring pretty well with this because we do have a certain level of immunity. So this is a, a, plaque neutral, a, a reduction in test uh, looking at people born before 1974 in the Netherlands and those born after 1974. You see the red dots and triangles that if you're born before 74, you are likely to have a certain um, uh, degree of immune protection against monkeypox. Now, if you are born before uh, 74, whether you have, um, uh, uh, <clears throat> if you already, sorry, if you already have monkeypox, you also will develop some uh, uh, antibody response to it, whether you're born before or after, and it doesn't make a difference whether you're born before or after. So two ways in this study that you, they may find monkeypox antibodies in you is you were born before 1974 or you have had monkeypox. Now, what happens if you actually got the vaccine? You will see on the left, if you were born before 1974, it doesn't really matter as much. According to this study, now we'll see what happens in other cohorts, is that the level of uh, antibodies you had did not increase a whole lot. There are four groups of uh, triangles or dots there on the left. You know, the first group is uh, pre-vaccination. The second group is uh, two weeks uh, um, uh, after the first vaccine. The, sec the third group is uh, four weeks after the first vaccine. And the fourth group of dots is 
uh, uh, four weeks after the second vaccine. So that boosting of the second vaccine given 28 days or later did not seem to do a whole lot for the rest of us born before 1974. Um, But if you look at those born after 1974, of course, like I showed you in the first uh, diagram on the left, is that they did not have antibodies before the vaccine. That's uh, normal. But they did not fare a whole lot better after the first shot or four weeks after the first shot. After the second shot, four weeks later, they had some, but it wasn't great. It wasn't actually to the level of those who did not have vaccine but were born before 1974. So this study suddenly calls into question the efficacy of the monkeypox vaccine that we have been using. Uh, What I'm not going to present to you is that it called into further question the strategy of the intradermal administration of a fifth of the dose, even if the technique is different and uh, the, the formulations are different. We have to be careful about the data that these uh, uh, recommendations stand on. So now let's move on to HIV. First, introducing PrEP and PEP by looking at who are we prepping and pepping. The people who are the most affected by this epidemic, especially in the U.S., uh, Blacks, African-Americans, Hispanics, Latino, uh, and uh, white. So you can see the diagram here. Now, what happens is that PrEP penetrance is still really poor, and there are still significant inequities in that penetrance. If you live in the South, like I do, you know that this is where the bulk of the epidemic is, and especially uh, in the vulnerable populations. And this is where we don't see a whole lot of uh, uh, prep. And the, the the green line, which takes off from the other ones, uh, the whites, and they're getting the most um, uh, prep, and we don't see a whole lot of prep even in 2021 in the other uh, racial and ethnic groups. So we have a significant inequity problem that we need to fix. Uh, uh, correct. Now, if you do uh, uh, <clears throat> have people on PrEP, um, there are significant uh, proportion of them who would present with sexually transmitted infections. Uh, this is somewhat mitigated by the guidelines of uh, 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 screening, uh, even asymptomatic ones. But what this diagram shows you for context is that that screening is not, it doesn't address the problem adequately. There's still 25% of people out there on PrEP who have at least one STI. Now, what can you do uh, about these people? Thankfully, it looks like you could do something. And this is called doxypep. And uh, 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 doxypep is uh, this study uh, in men who have sex with men and transgender women with HIV or on PrEP um, had an STI in the past year. So the people, the 25% I just presented to you in the previous slide, they were randomized two to one to receive 200 milligrams of doxycycline within 72 hours of a condomless sex or no doxycycline uh, with STI treatment and at enrollment, quarterly and when symptomatic. Now, on the right, unfortunately, it does not show well. I apologize. But what I'm going to read to you what's on that table, but I can't see, so I've got to put my glasses on. So what's on that table 
is the risk reduction in STR incidents per quarter. Uh, that's the top table. And then on Doxypep reduced in, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, STI to a third uh, of what they were before. So it's really an incredibly positive uh, study. And that was, uh, um, people made a lot out of the differences uh, in the risk reduction between those on PrEP and those live with HIV, but I, I really don't see much of a difference when I look at these numbers. They're about the same. And then on the left, the table shows you the numbers and um, those with primary STI endpoints when they were not on DOXY were about a third, uh, about 30%, right? a little under 30% without living with HIV or uh, on PrEP. And with DOXYPEP, it was less than, that uh, was 9.6% for the uh, uh, those on uh, on uh, PrEP and uh, 12% in those living with HIV. So this is a, a very positive uh, development that I would hope uh, uh, will be replicated and will be followed. Uh, I think uh, this is a relatively uh, simple intervention and a cheap one. But unfortunately, in the United States, we don't like cheap interventions. If it was expensive, I would be very uh, hopeful that it would be used. So... Here's uh, unmet needs with onoportunistic infections. We have to look at uh, uh, this uh, uh, study. And cryptomeningitis, I was talking to Dr. Sag last night, is something that is inc- incredible. If you live in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, you really do not want to have cryptomeningitis because it will kill you. And, and it's not as deadly here. So it's important to look at what you could do to mitigate uh, such a lethality. And uh, in South Africa and other countries, they have started... Uh, looking at uh, um, uh, screening uh, for serum crypto antigen in people who do not have symptoms of meningitis. And this is one uh, uh, study where they looked at uh, <clears throat> people where uh, during that, that screening, 95 uh, screen subject compared to 32 on screen subject received fluconazole prior to their being diagnosed with crypto meningitis. So when they screened a positive, they got uh, fluconazole. And what happened is that uh, they died less from the disease. And the disease was less severe, uh, lower uh, uh, CSP uh, opening pressure in those who, who were uh, uh, screened and given uh, fluconazole. So what this shows is that uh, uh, serum crypto antigen screening is likely re- detecting cryptomeningitis at an earlier stage. That, that is uh, at a pre-symptomatic or post-symptomatic state. So this is what the DHHS guidelines have for now. Uh, serum cryptogenic screening in those who still count less than 100. And, and in screen-positive uh, patients, uh, CSF evaluation should be performed. So now let's move on to another OI, another uh, um, uh, uh, co-infection of HIV, which is hepatitis B, about 5% or, uh, of people in the United States. And in on... South Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, hepatitis B co-infection is a lot higher. And this one, uh, study is in Asia. And what they did is they looked at Bictegravir FTC TAF versus Dolutegravir plus FTC TDF. Of course, FTC TAF and FTC TDF are the ones that are likely to be active against hepatitis B. And in that comparison, both performed equally well in reducing HIV viral load, and that was no surprise. 
But the surprise was that Bictegravir FTC TAF had a better uh, efficacy against hepatitis B. On the right, you see the proportion of those who were uh, vir- uh, virologically suppressed uh, uh, for the HIV is the same. On, on top and the bottom of the hepatitis B is uh, uh, different in, in uh, better with uh, TAF FTC. And on the table on the left, you see that other outcomes were better. Uh, ALT normalization, uh, antigen, uh, uh, S antigen and E antigen loss were all better with uh, TAF FTC. I would really like to see what others would think about this and whether it would be duplicated because this is not something that was seen when um, TAF FTC was being uh, 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 tried um, in, in people with hepatitis B. Okay, so now the near and dear to my heart is comorbidities. We now having people living significantly longer with HIV, that's a good thing, but they are carrying a huge burden of comorbidities, the number of which continues to increase and is expected to be significantly high uh, in the, uh, 20, by 2030, i.e. in 10 years. What we see here is that with uh, antiviral therapy that is so effective, we have narrowed the gap in survival between people living with HIV and those who are not. There is still a gap. And what is the remaining gap is comorbidities and and non-infectious complications by and large. So how can we reduce them? We thought that we did. And now we had this study presented at CROI uh, a few months ago that but between uh, this is partners of health in uh, uh, Massachusetts and uh, Casa Permanente in California here is that from 20, 2005-2009 there was no difference uh, in uh, incidence of uh, acute myocardial infarctions in people with HIV and without. Good news. On the right, 2010-2017, those curves are diverging with more uh, uh, acute MIs in people with HIV than not. Not good news. And, and, and why would that be? We're having safer drugs, more metabolically safe drugs, but we, we need to understand what this means and uh, increase our vigilance for that. So what we, when we had the START trial, we showed that, it showed that if you start HIV treatment early without letting the CD4 count drop, you not only decrease the incidence of uh, uh, infectious complications, but also non-infectious complications. That was very important and, uh, and shouldn't be overlooked. But what about people who have controlled the virus themselves without the drug? Uh, do they still have a high risk of complications? It's possible that it was possible that they, they didn't. But here, these studies suggest that they have uh, just about the same rate of non it's defining events as people on suppressive ART. So that will need to be discussed. And what does that mean? Should we still pushing for, for these people to be treated? But the cross-sectional imaging suggests that they actually have more coronary classifications uh, than, than, than those who are on suppressive uh, ART. Now, this is a trip down memory lane. Um, it, uh, more than about 12 or 13 years ago, we found out that if you start treatment with a back of you, within the first six months, your rate of MI was higher than those um, uh, who were not starting a back of you. This came to us uh, 
for thanks to the DAD cohort, and that scratch got a lot of people scratching their heads. If you think you've seen this before, you are seeing it again. Now, what we see if the respond cohort is that uh, it's showing us that instances where use was associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease within the six months after the onset, which is eerily reminiscent, in my view, of what we had seen uh, with Abaka. And of course, we need to understand this. Now, I've seen people divided into two camps, the believers and the non-believers. But when I got joined science, I thought it was not a religion. We need to just understand whether this is important or whether this is true or not with more studies. It being, again, other studies suggesting that uh, again, uh, the weight gain that we've seen with tafanistis was actually associated with uh, de novo uh, steatohepatitis in this particular study. So things to, to keep an eye on. But this is not something that has been universally seen. And uh, a, a, re- a reprieve, which is a gift that we'll keep giving, has already given us that we probably do not have a higher risk of metabolic syndrome uh, with instinct. But on the right, at the IES um, uh, 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 World AIDS meeting uh, last month, we had another study suggesting that uh, MI, congestive heart failure, and lipid disorders were more common in instinct users. So a a hotly debated issue that we need to get uh, more clarity on. Now, let's go on to cure. We are probably making strides, but um, um, this study, I'm going to summarize it very briefly, is uh, VRCO1 uh, 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 in abs that suggesting that uh, it was safe in infants, but not um, um, efficacious in <clears throat> reducing uh, um, uh the, the, the HIV RNA. Now, the plasma viral levels were lower than were pre- was predicted. So it's important to see if this is an intervention that may need to be optimized combine, combined with others um, and to, to get a better uh, 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 efficacy. Uh, again, this is again uh, highlighted by the fact that post-hoc analysis showed that higher VRCO1 concentrations correlated with larger reductions in HIV DNA uh, from week uh, zero four uh, uh, in this uh, study. <clears throat> so again, we keep getting a, a, a trickle of people who actually got um, a durable um, uh, uh, remission, I, I should call it. Uh, this is a prolonged HIV remission with uh, uh, without antiretroviral therapy in another allogenic uh, stem cell transplant. Uh, in uh, at the I like the name City of Hope uh, patient because this is really our hope that we'll get there soon, and 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 that is. Uh, 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 the, the cure agenda marches on. I think that there will be a lot of uh, progress uh, being made. Now, let's close on with COVID. And I was asked to take COVID test, COVID antigen test to, to, to get here to, to be allowed to talk to you. And But how good are they? So this is uh, one study that actually gives a little more of a window. It, it's that we compared to two things, the, the PCR test and the uh, uh, and 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 the um, uh, the the culture, the antigen test one is not very sensitive. 
If you do two, two days in a row, you significantly increase the sensitivity. So it may be something that people uh, should uh, um, try doing. So we had in the early days of HIV understood that the, 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 thanks to some data from South Africa, Western Cape, and then WHO, what is the risk of people living with HIV? This is one study that showed that in hospital mortality from COVID, uh, that's higher in, uh, in people with HIV and the risk factors uh, were older age that, that, that we knew, but also low CD4 count, chronic kidney disease and diabetes. So, and, and this is sort of uh, uh, an, an advanced HIV disease. So it's important to, to know that uh, with COVID, the moral of the story is that you should really, really be pushing for uh, vaccination in your people living with HIV. And that vaccination, how good is it? We have uh, seen that uh, there was a resistance to move to a different va- vaccine formulation with the different waves of the, 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 the COVID uh, virus up to uh, 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 Omicron uh, 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 the, the father, but Omicron, the daughters and the, the and the sons, is not faring so well. With I mean, the vaccines are not faring so well with it. This is a, a CDC study uh, with uh, BA uh, two and uh, two point twelve already showing in in the the boxes that the efficacy of the <clears throat> the the mRNA vaccines uh, from uh, uh, that were available is a little lower after uh, uh, a couple of doses uh, uh, and maybe uh, booster was even more important in these people. But then um, uh, came uh, this study uh, uh, last month uh, in COVID vaccine efficacy during the newer Omicrons, uh, BA4 and BA5, substantially uh, by 4.2-fold, uh, more resistance and thus more likely to lead to uh, vaccine breakthrough infections. And uh, this Omicron BA4 and 5 are branching out here uh, in red. And what they have is, is specific mutations here, six, uh, specifically L452R, uh, which is leading to this level of uh, uh, immune escape. So what that tells us is that we need this, and it's already here as of last week, bivalent uh, COVID vaccines, and uh, uh, I have exceeded my time, and you should give them uh, for everyone who is at least two months after uh, the initial series. Thank you. Okay. So uh, if anyone has questions for Roger on any of the data that we've been talking about, please do put it in Slido. Um, While we're waiting for those uh, to come in, um, and please do think if you have questions that you'd like to pose to Dr. Padimo. Roger, you know, um, you know, obviously I I was fascinated by the doxy data at AIDS um, 2022 this summer. And, you know, I, I was a little surprised to see reductions in gonorrhea incidents. We, we level resistance to gonorrhea to doxy that, you know, I wouldn't have expected it to have efficacy. Um, uh, and indeed in 
doxypep study that he appended to hypergay, there was chlamydia and syphilis reductions, but not but gonorrhea. Not gonorrhea. Yes. What, what do you think? Yeah, that's very interesting in that actually, if my memory serves me right, there was actually going to uh, 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 do, uh, resistance in the gonorrhea that they diagnosed in those who, who got it. So it's possible that the uh, that it's not as important to have a higher efficacy uh, against GC uh, 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 That is all I can say. Maybe a, uh, a doxy <laughs> yeah, but, but this is a contrast to, to, to that previous study, I agree. Uh, and, but, I mean, the question is, would that be tolerated, right? I mean, we sort of that for Lyme disease sometimes, and I think very exciting, I think. Um, uh, so we have a question uh, from the audience. Um, uh, how would you compare monkeypox data to the original Genios approval, which showed high-level antibodies, is the difference primarily from monkeypox versus smallpox neutralization, or do we not know yet? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And that paper from last week in the Netherlands I, uh, touched on that, that the techniques and the formulations and the passages that these uh, vaccines have gone through uh, prior to testing may be different. It's very different, difficult to compare. But if at least one thing, this should be false. Because again, we are using a surrogate action here. Let's be uh, clear. Don't know how good a surrogate that is to begin with. And then the testing differences at another layer of uncertainty. Uh, it's just that we should not be so quick to. And I think it's a very sobering warning, right? Um, uh, another question from the group, um, do you have any hypothesis as to why the TAF-based regimen fared better outcomes than the TDF-FTC? It's, it's, it's puzzling to me. Uh, I looked at how would you work, how would TAF work against HIV? Parasites, I, I know very little about the liver cell. But it's possible, we know that for TAF, you know, the, for what have been talked about, intracellular versus levels. Uh, 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 now, whether that applies to uh, other sites, I don't know. I think that this will be something that. Have you changed your practice yeah. in terms of? Of course, TAF FTC doesn't have U.S. <laughs> regulatory approval. I don't. Yeah, I, I haven't, and and I work with a very. Changing, it's, it's not up to me. Um, I think lots more to be said about that. Um, we have a question from Dr. Sag. Um, what do you make of the Lancet study that showed the integrase-associated uh, increase in coronary events up to two years after initiation? And, you know, should we counseling our patients to be initiated in speed-based about this? Or what are you yeah. telling people? Yeah. 
that gave me uh, echoes of uh, the first thing I, I looked at is okay, how do you get a myocardial infarction? Comes from the years of eating burgers and and building a plaque. And then that plaque becomes unstable and ruptures. So if you take a drug, and if it is, let's say, plausible, that that drug led you to have a high risk of MI, that means you did not build that plaque in six months. Some of us are working with likely occluded coronaries and just with something to make that plaque. So my hypothesis is that something is making that plaque unstable and rupture. And, and, and this is where we need to look. And again, it's become such a charged thing. Just again, like in, uh, uh, with a back of you, that some people say, this is hogwash. Don't believe any of this happened. I, I think we shouldn't get there. We should have the candle of telling people that you don't know. You will read about this, we don't know, and that we need to find out. And if it keeps it recorded, then I will be cautious about it. That's all I can say. Story of these data. Oh, now we're live. Uh, can everyone hear us okay? Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. So, what? what one, one last question also from, from Dr. Sag. Can we expect to see clusters of monkeypox cases um, in contact sports, particularly now that kids are back in school and some of the professional sports teams are beginning their seasons? And if so, how should we mobilize resources to prevent cancellation of seasons? Hmm. It's a multi-billion dollar question, Dr. Sack. And I think that what we've learned from 2022 uh, epidemic is that uh, it takes close contact and uh, respiratory transmission, the uh, fomites, maybe happens, but not whole. Now, when is it going to be herpes gladiatorum that going to have uh, uh, people getting... It, it is possible. And what history shows us is that while the disease is in 98% MSMC, it will spill over to, to other populations. Just that if we have it circulating long enough by our negligence of uh, uh, a lack of enthusiasm in, in dealing with it where it is now, then we might deal with canceling football season soon. And that... <laughs> but not Alabama. Well, we're going we're gonna to need to move on to our next speaker, but please join me in thanking Dr. Bedimo for a great talk. Thank you. Thank you.